Let's spell a song so you can sing along with my special guest star too. For two, you like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, John, and with me today is a returning guest where I'm a little confused why he picked this movie. It's Colton Lamb, everyone. Woo! You need to be more careful when the wind rises, Georgie. You could have lost your kite, and you two could have lost your Georgie. Might have been completely if I wasn't holding on to the other end of that string. My goodness, Annabelle, look what you've done to your clothes. You could grow a garden that much soil. And John... Yes, John, just as filthy. Now I understand why you picked this movie. <laughs> uh, hi, Colden. How you doing? I am doing absolutely practically perfect today. <laughs> and he's showing the umbrella that is in Mary Poppins Returns. Um, well, I mean, it's also in Mary Poppins because it's the same character. But we're here to talk about Mary Poppins Returns. Oh, I have that one, too. Oh, um, Mary Poppins Returns came out in 2018. Screenplay by David McGee, music by Mark Shaman, uh, lyrics by Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman, directed by the one and only Rob Marshall. Hi, Rob Marshall. Welcome back to the podcast. And if you and according to IMDb, a few decades after her original visit, Mary Poppins, the magical nanny, returns to help the Banks siblings and Michael's children through a difficult time in their lives. No, but like, really, why did you pick the re- the sequel, not the original? Well, let's start on that. Um, I think a good place to start for this podcast, and especially this movie, is and what will determine whether we like this movie or not, is what is your relationship like with Mary Poppins before seeing Mary Poppins Returns? So I watched it as a kid. I've only seen the movie. I haven't read the books. We, I was more Amelia Bedelia, if you remember. Oh, her. <laughs> we were we were more Amelia Bedelia. But I've only seen the mo- the first movie, and you can chastise me all you want, but doing this podcast uh, was the first time I saw Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, and that's important because. P.L. Travers hated Mary Poppins. So Disney was like, we got to figure something else out. No, that is correct. That is the story behind Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. It was it was a back burner. If P.L. Travers was being too difficult, the backup was Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Yes, which I mean, which ties actually into Mary Poppins Returns because Bed Knobs and Broomsticks stars Dame Angela Lansbury, who makes a cameo in this movie. Not only that, but also there's a connection between with Mary Poppins Returns and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The guy that played the dad in Mary Poppins is in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yes, but for Mary Poppins Returns, there's a lot of connections to Bedknobs and Broomsticks that I was not aware of. Besides Angela Lansbury, there's an underwater sequence. There are three kids, just like in Bedknobs. Oh, interesting, yeah. There's an animated world populated by jungle animals in Mary Poppins. It was barnyard animals and humans. But in the Royal Dalton Ball, it is all jungle animals, the same as in 
bed knobs and broomsticks. And also, like bed knobs and broomsticks, Mary Poppins Returns features a gigantic climax. In bed knobs, it's fighting off the Nazis. In this one, it's the rush to the bank and Big Ben. Yeah, yeah. When the movie turns into an action film... <laughs> oh, we'll get into that. But in any case... Was that and also, your- before we go any further, it's going to happen, but I want to at least acknowledge um, on my other podcast movie, Deja Vu, my co-host Shady and I did compare Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins Returns because they follow the same beats, if you really think about it. They do. Now, so wonder if that was intentional or if that was the studio poking its head saying hey do mary poppins returns but we still needed to be really similar to the first one that would be great well so i think it is done on purpose because a theme in this movie and it's said time and time again is like remember childhood remember being a child be a child especially to the kids it's like you unfortunately had to grow up really fast because your mom died and your dad isn't like like your dad is in emotional distress and the kid and a lot fell on the kids but like you are kids be kids and that's and like georgie's a good representation of that because like he is the youngest so the the twins are letting him be a kid but also minding him and i think though with the way that they did this movie they're like okay there's a shit ton of nostalgia with mary poppins and we're going for nostalgia. So um, we have Emily Blunt, who was given, like, like Julie Andrews gave her blessing because Dame Julie Andrews is the Pope. Julie Andrews was supposed to be Angela Lansbury's part, but she said she turned it down. For saying, Aquaman. Well, Julie Andrews said that this oh, is... That was the story. joke. That was the joke yeah. that she turned it down for Aquaman, which came out at the same time and made more money then Mary Poppins returns at the box office when it came out. But like, all in all, I really do like this movie. I've seen it multiple. I've seen it before. I do like it. I do cry at this movie multiple times. So do I. I think the moments that make me cry the most is when the camera does a pan of Cherry Tree Lane uh, and a refrain of the life I led plays in one of the uh, moments of the film that makes me cry like crazy. The Another first, oh yeah, that makes me cry, and it builds. And Rob Marshall does a great job building up this tension and the suspense. And this, here comes, here she comes, here she comes, here she comes. Is where Mary Poppins comes down from the sky, and uh, her grand entrance floating down. That makes me cry a lot. And number one reason why it's really hard for me to watch this film, and it was really hard for me to rewatch this because, and I knew that the moment was coming up and it just makes me ugly cry every single time, which is nowhere to go, but up. Yes. I don't know why I cry. <laughs> it, it's the music. It's, it's, it's just, I, well, here's the thing. I am not a big fan of the action climax sequence at the end of the film. However, it serves a purpose of the family of, this last push of all this stress and tension and then to have nowhere to go but up where you see all these characters just letting it go and also for me what starts the crying is when um 
uh, what is it? Admiral Boom starts to fly and he's like, I've set sail. I'm like, ah, oh, Admiral Boom. It's Why it, you making me cry? I, I'm crying when everyone's flying around, especially when Julie Walters. There's like so many dames in this movie, by the way, in this franchise. Let's just acknowledge that for a hot second. So Julie Walters starts flying and singing, which she's underutilized in this movie. I want to say that too. So were the maids in the last one. Right. Well, that's the thing. She's in the first one. That character name is in the first one. Ellen, right? Yeah. Which is, there's a lot of little things here and there, a little Easter eggy things for like the fans of the first movie. Where you're like, okay, but it, they glorify it, but they don't at the same time, which is yeah. what I like about and, it. Which I do appreciate. And they don't really, like, a prime example of a great Easter egg is the girl who played Jane in the original makes a cameo. Mm-hmm. In which she is walking past Cherokee Lane and she's looking for number 19. And they say it's right down there, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and the girl who's playing the Jane in this one. And Jane, who's making the cameo, says, many thanks sincerely. Which goes, is the the way that they ended the note in the first ended, movie. Yeah. The perfect nanny, yes. But the other time I cry, and feel free to laugh at me, is during Can You Imagine That? And it's when she, I'm going to cry even describing it, when she, uh, when all the kids are in the underwater sequence, well, all the kids are underwater and she's sitting on the tub and she goes uh, and she says, off we go and slides down. I'm ugly crying. And I'm like, and I think I know why for this one. It's because of the childhood innocence that this song represents. And like the the imagination and like people say, people say Georgie has an over imagination in this movie, but like he's a kid. We have to remember that, like, even as adults, we could play. Granted, it's going to be a little, it's a little different. We're like, you know, maybe like, inter- instead of like, acting out a whole scene by ourselves, you know, improving, like maybe we join an improv class and that's us playing. Or we do other things we deem as childish, but like, we could do it in an adult way. I don't know what I'm saying, but like. Yeah, no, finding ways to make life enjoyable and not so serious and having us our jobs tie us down like a bank. And I think that's also why uh nowhere to go but up. Well plus it's also Angela Lansbury who in our time is Mrs. Potts. She is like Lady Disney at this point. <laughs> yes. Cuz she was in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, she was in that, she's probably been in other things that I can't think of off the top of my head. Yeah, because I'm trying to think what other Disney properties she's done. I mean, she's done voices for the parks. Right. And I, I think like her do her two big ones are Bedknobs and Beauty. By the way, the actress's name who played the original Jane is Karen Dotris. I just wanted to give the shout out, you know, give the name. And, and that's a moment, too, where you're like, I don't know why this is in the movie. Unless you know that is the woman who played the original Jane. Glynis Jones was alive during the time of filming, but she, I don't know if she was offered anything or she turned it down. I didn't really read that deeply into it. Uh, Unfortunately, the actor who played Michael Banks passed away like in the 70s. That is correct. But it's nice that they had somebody here and that 
and like I understand Julie uh, Dame Julie Andrews is mine idea of like I don't want to like this this is a separate story it would have been nice to see her and I think we all would have been ugly crying even harder but I understand why why she said no to it I wish she didn't though I wish she read the room and that you know this this Mary Poppins returns and it wasn't going to affect anything and if they could bring back Dick Van Dyke right but Dick Van Dyke a lot of problems I feel like she just caused a lot of problems because when everyone saw Angela Lansbury everyone in the audience goes oh they probably gave that to Julie Andrews but she turned it down so now all we think about is how stubborn Julie Andrews is. Which is which is funny, because if do you know like the history of Mary Poppins? I like, do indeed. So, okay, you the listener, Colden and I are gonna nerd out for a hot second. Originally, Mary Poppins was offered to Julie uh, Andrews. She turned it down because she was pregnant at the time. And then it I think they were going to offer it to Angela Lansbury, but then um they waited out and julie andrews obviously got the role and then as we said bed knobs and broomsticks happened because pl travers hated the first movie so angela lansbury ended up playing that role i feel like those movies came out around the same time like maybe a year apart or two years apart um bed knobs came out i believe in 1970 and then Poppins came out in 64. Then i'm wrong so <laughs> but you know the interesting story about that they wanted Julie Andrews, Andrews to play Eglantine Price. And she turned was it like, down. She was like, I just did this. <laughs> I did this for you. But it gets more interesting. The day after they signed Angela Lansbury to play Eglantine Price, she contacts the Disney Studios and says, hey, after some reconsideration, I would love to do this. And then they're like, sorry, we gave it to Angela. Oh, no. So... There was a there. There are times when she realizes it was an uh, a wrong decision. She wanted to do it, but it was too late. You don't want to know an interesting tidbit. I'm sure. I think you did, Geppetto. But Geppetto was supposed to be a reunion for Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews. Dick Van Dyke was going to play Geppetto, and Julie Andrews was going to play the Blue Fairy. But she respectfully turned it down, and so and then Dick Van Dyke said if. Julie's not doing it. I don't want to do it. And then they gave it to Drew Carey and what's her name? So she keeps turning down things and it drives me insane. I'm like, Julie, we all love you. We all want to see you do things. Please don't be scared. Well, so I know that she famously had nodes or there's something up with her voice that she had to get like major surgery. And she doesn't, I don't think she sings really anymore. No, except that little bit in um, Princess Diaries 2. Right. So, like, it might also have been, like, you want me to sing a whole song, too? It may be, like, a psychological thing where she didn't want to sing as well as... But also, in the early 2000s, she did a tour called Julie Andrews and Friends, in which she didn't sing a lot, but she did sing little bits here and there in a key that was comfortable for her voice and if she's only going to sing a little bit i'm giving her i'm just giving her excuses at this point i'm playing the devil's advocate julie (laughs) you need to work um so okay 
let's move on from the casting. I want to jump to the action sequences for a hot second. Because I think the cartoon action sequence needed to happen. So when they're in the va- when the vase at, uh, and they're a little heavy handed with who's voicing the villains and the, uh, they're chasing and all that. I think that needed to happen. But the Leary's climbing Big Ben to turn it to turn back time. I was like, why did this need to happen if it's going to be saved by Mary Poppins just floating? Like, why not just have her fly the whole from the get? Yeah, that was a that was a very much of a Deus Ex Machina. Yes. Well, no, it was great because it was like building tension, and then Jack just stands there and says, "I can't reach the ands," and then she goes up. I'm like, Mary, I know this is sort of like this certificate in which we all know it was there, and it's like the ruby red slippers of the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy always had the power to go back to Kansas. But she needed to learn the lesson. And I know with the Learys, they needed to learn how to get up Big Ben and work together, yada, yada. Yeah, but the Learys work together anyway. Times of the essence. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I will say about this about the action sequence. I'm not a big fan of, unfortunately, of the of the last final sequence. It gets your blood going and you, and you wonder what's going to happen. But I'm not a, personally not a big fan of it. I mean, would an audi- modern audience who has been fed a diet of superhero and action movies, stomach a movie without an obvious villain and chase sequences. Well, here's the thing. I don't understand Colin Firth, why he's so evil. It's not like he hates uh, Michael Banks. It's not like he wants that house for whatever reason, he has a line that's this throwaway line where he's like, I don't like to lose. And I'm like, that's not a good enough excuse for you to be like snidely whiplash, twirling your mustache, being the evil villain. There may have been something missing when they were, because this movie I think was in development hell for a while. And I think with the rewrites and the story edits and all that, something was like lost for his character. I actually don't mind his character because when was the last time we saw a, just a villain who was just mean, especially in our modern? But I Disney don't under—I don't understand why he why he's so mean. Why is Jafar so mean? Because he wants why, the power. Why is Maleficent so mean? Why is it's like I think it's she more, wasn't invited to the. Thank you. You know what I mean. Just an old-fashioned villain who's just evil for evil's sake. You Yes. But, like, it's weird because now we're doing... Li- it's like he's also gaslighting and there's other things. And I'm just like, but, like, why are, why are you just so... Why? Because he was a greedy banker. Because he wanted to double the profits of the bank. But, he, yeah. but as Dick Van Dyke said, yes, by bringing it out of the customer's pockets. I love it when Dick Van Dyke comes in. I love that the Deus Ex Machina of Mary Poppins Returns. I also love the behind the scenes of him, where they're like they gave him like three or four different options for choreography, like differing levels of difficulty, and he chose the hardest level. Of course, he did. He's Dick Van Dyke. 
And it was just so nice. And I cried a little bit too when he was soft, doing a little soft shoe on the desk. Because I was like, it's Dick Van Dyke. Which is funny because if you read the IMDb trivia, there's a lot shit ton of stuff. But one of the things that they mentioned was like, that character in the first movie was like in his 30s or something like that. And now this is supposed to be like 20 years later. And Dick Van Dyke is in his 90s when he filmed this and they made him look even older so the character that he's playing is like a hundred years old or something like that but he's really supposed to be 50 well i like the idea that he's like very ancient, and you know 200 years old but i i don't care because that character i don't care either i don't movie, think anyone cares i don't care and i just i just love that it's dick van dyke i love that also he is the surprise because if you rewatch it again, I know it's going to hurt you a little bit. Just watch the beginning. During the opening sequence, they do the stereotypical, you know, here's the cast and everything. They don't mention him. But at the very end, they do the same thing they did in the first one when he was playing Mr. Dawes Sr., in which they scramble his name and then it gets switched around and it shows that it was Dick Van Dyke playing Mr. Dawes Sr. And in this one, they do the same thing. At the end of the credits for Mary Poppins Returns, they scramble his name and it's Dick Van Dyke. Have you not seen that? I don't remember this. I'm sorry. I I think I'm also coming off of like ugly crying from nowhere to go but up. So your homework is to go watch the credits credits for Mary Poppins Returns and then watch the credits for Mary Poppins. Yes. Did you actually read the books as well? You asked me. I I didn't get your response, by the way. Okay, so you have the book. You read all of them? I've read, I think, the first three. I know that Mary Poppins Returns takes inspiration from, I think, books four through six. Especially if there's a a book called Mary Poppins Opens the Door. And they use that in the movie when Mary Poppins knows when it's time to leave when the door opens. So... In the books, it's just Jane and Michael. There is no, like, passing of the torch where she comes back to one of the kids. Believe it or not, um, she does stay with Jane and Michael, yes. But in the original books and throughout all the books, there's Jane and Michael. And there and are then a two, third. There are four. There are four banks. Oh. Yeah. Let me check what their names are one more time. Um. So... I, I'm sorry to correct you, Colden, but there are actually five Banks children in five. the books. Five. There's Jane, the eldest, Michael, then there are fraternal twins, John and Barbara, and then John Annabelle. And so what Mary Poppins Returns did was they kept the idea of the fraternal twins, they made it John and Annabelle, and then they added Georgie. In this movie, they kept it so that there's five Banks children, two generations of, of it, though. <laughs> yeah. Annabelle must have come in later because she's definitely not in the first installments. I don't remember Annabelle that. is the youngest and born midway through the second book. There we go. Oh, my God. There's just so much to talk about with this because, like, you have Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman back right, writing together. And... They're the only things that I feel like if they weren't trying to hearken the Sherman brothers or anything. They were just writing their own music, which that I really liked. And also, I think they wrote for Lynn, especially in like a cover is not the book when he does the rap sequence or like the patter. Like they wrote that. I don't think he wrote it. 
No, because you could tell there's a lot of Mark Shaman, Scott Whitman lyric qualities with their lyric qualities that you they love to find compared to Lynn, where Lynn just blasts out references. They're very smart about referencing things in the way they use lyrics. For example, in that pattern sequence, um, well, unless it's Dr. Jekyll, then you better hide. So right. rather than just saying, I'm like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is what Lynn would say. They're very smart about it, and they would they cover things up, and they 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 twist words on a dime. Like another example in Topsy Turvy, when will it cease? Now my life is endless war and peace. Like they know how to reference things, but they do it in a very smart, clever way. Yeah. So turning turtle. Oh, you mean I love to laugh? Yes. Well, yeah, but what is Meryl doing? I could tell she's having fun. I know she's having the best time because she's like mute. Disney musical, I'll take that money. I get to do a crazy accent. Great. I have a weird wardrobe. Awesome. But what is she I don't know. But I do know that her character, as a male counterpart in the books, and this is what they took from from one of the later books, and they gave it to Meryl. They made it uh, female, and I think they made it Russian as well. But so- here's a main plot hole in that sequence. We never see Topsy return the bowl as fixed. That plot line never gets resolved. We never she, see Topsy again. She says, we come never see the bowl. So we don't know what happens to the bowl at she all. T- she tells them to come back. Tells it's them a throwaway to come back. line. It's, it's, a, it's a throwaway such line. a throwaway line. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So with a cover's not the book and turning turtle, they're using the songs as like a lesson as in the first one with Spoonful of Sugar. But these are more like lessons specific to this story where I think Spoonful of Sugar is more like a, it's a life lesson, you know, like clean your room, do your chores, be a better human. These are like, covers not the book is basically Mary Poppins being like, Mr. Wilkins is a bad guy, but I'm not going to, tell you it outright you have to figure it out audience (laughs) i will say i think that there are more lessons songs as lessons in this one because i think in mary poppins the first one there's only like no i mean i was about to say feed the birds but it's not really a lesson well it could be i think only spoonful of sugar and maybe feed the birds are the only like two lesson songs yeah the rest are just songs songs as this but this one every song almost has a lesson or a moral like the place where lost things go oh yes imagine that and turning turtle has a message in it the one i'm not can i don't know and maybe you could help me figure this out triple little light fantastic i don't i think that's just a fun song i don't think there's a lesson in that one that one has a lesson because when you lose your way find the light within and all that nonsense oh okay that that's a little that one's a little more when your okay. life is getting scary be your own illuminary that can shine the light for all the world to see got it okay well and then i guess so then i guess in this one the only one that isn't a lesson is it's a conversation royal dalton oh i was going to say a conversation oh, and a conversation yeah the royal dalton music hall like the introduction yeah. yes in this dilly dynamical that- simply so dynamical it's the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's you what know, it is. Most people 
say that the super cal of this movie is covers not the book and Royal Dalton Bowl, the song, is the movie's Jolly Holiday. Maybe Royal Dalton Music Hall is a combination of the two. Yes, it's a little gray area. There is no defined Jolly Holiday number in the song compared to, like, there are defined I Love to Laugh, which is top... Turning Turtle, Turtle. There's a defining Step in Time, which is Trip a Little Light Fantastic. They may have said that Covers Not the Book is Jolly Holiday because of the Penguins. But we're going, like, lyrically and musically because I say Royal Dalton is... Super Cal, because of the chorus that you sang for us, just because it is kind of like a interesting pat. Is it a patter? What do we? How would you define? Or is it just the melody line for Royal Dalton? Yeah, it has a lot of tricky lyrics, but I wouldn't consider it patter. I would consider that a list song because it's just listing things that are. In the Royal Dalton Bowl, I wouldn't consider it a patter song. Okay, and so there's, it's it's just the a lot tongue of twister. Yeah, it's more of a tongue twister. I I know a lot of people didn't like this movie. No, the Los movie. Angeles Times in its review said, "Quote: Mary Poppins returns, and she really shouldn't." But like, I think this one is like they were like we're going for kids and a nostalgia factor, but like ultimately they're aiming it towards kids. Because it's a Disney movie. <laughs> That's what they yeah. do. And many just consider it because it follows the same beat as the original. They considered it a Disney remake along with Beauty and Aladdin and all the other remakes that were happening at the time. Oh, see, I, I mean, I saw it as a sequel because that's what I it see is. It as a sequel too, but because people are cruel. And here's the interesting thing. I think we mentioned it when we did street scene there you'll notice that nowadays for movie reviews a movie either gets glowing reviews yes and very positive reviews or it gets really bad reviews there's nothing in the middle it's got like a medium meta score on imdb it's got a 66 out of 100 wow it has a 66 now yeah when the movie first came out in 2018 i knew that its rotten tomato score was 80 percent and dropped Ugh. oh no, no this is the meta score this is a different scoring oh system. meta score not rotten okay not rotten what did you think of emily blunt's performance well i thought she was practically perfect in every way um you'll note that just like me where julie andrews is mary poppins was a beautiful lyric soprano mary poppins smoked a couple of packs in between the years and now she's a bass well, it's also the 30s, so we're embracing jazz a little bit. Yes, yeah, so there there is a jazz idiom, especially in uh, topsy-turvy. Um, I would say that the rest of the songs are in a traditional musical theater style. Yeah. Um, but the only time we ever embrace the, the time period is uh, Turning Turtle. I will say, though, that Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman originally wrote a song called stuff and nonsense for mary poppins it was a song that was supposed to be in the slot or is the song that became the slot of can you imagine that and that has a more of a jazzy 1930s feel 
because they wanted to communicate that Mary Poppins was up to the times with the kids. But eventually that song got cut and it got replaced with a more traditional Mary Poppins musical theater feel of Can You Imagine That? But if you're interested in listening to Stuff and Nonsense, you can go to my YouTube channel when this episode gets released and I have recorded the song Stuff and Nonsense so you could give it a listen and you can hear how the song began and if you think you, it should have stayed or not. I haven't heard it, so I will I will listen to it. No one has, which yeah. is super cool. Um, to kind of go off uh, on your what you were talking about, when you get into Can You Imagine That, as well as covers uh, in the bowl. It's a bowl, right? Not a vase. I said vase earlier. I'm sorry. Everyone. It's a bowl, yes. Um, I got a little confused as to what time period we were in because I was using costume as helping. Yes, well, it was the mother's bowl, meaning that she probably had it. Victorian era. Victorian era. That's why everyone's in Victorian garbs. Also, you'll note that they're doing a music hall. A music hall was very big during the Victorian era. Air to Fay, why that musical style for covers, not the book, is music hall style. Okay. And then we go back out of the vase, out of this Victorian vase into back to the 1930s. Because I know we're in the 30s. And then when we go into Can You Imagine That, they're wearing like 19-teens costumes. You you take a great attention to costumes. I wonder where that comes from. But I think for that one, I think because it is a fantasy, they are... It might just be the bathing costume and they're like... Yeah, okay, and I think we're... people still wore bathing costumes like that. I think I don't think it was till even the fifties that that changed to the swimsuit. Yeah, oh, that we that sounds stopped right with the swimsuits. Okay, I love style. the costumes in this movie. I, don't get me wrong, I love the costumes the 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 fabrics, the textures. Hell, when we're in the bowl, like the detail put into their costumes, it's amazing because it's all like it's all. 2d on 3d bodies yes i'm glad it was nominated for an oscar i wish it won though i also wish that mark shaman won for best score at the oscars because he deserved that this was a good this was great i mean was there was any song nominated for original song do you know the place where the lost things go was nominated which i think was oh it was i mean it's a good song but i don't think it's oscar worthy i think if they were going to nominate it it should have been um nowhere to go but up i felt like that should have been nominated not where the lost things go because that i don't know that's i feel like that's an obvious non-winner but they still wanted to nominate them for something and then the other nomination that they got was production design which i mean rightfully so i was reading that they built these set pieces and they are intricate set pieces, which is great because, I mean, yes, the Dalton Hall is all green screen, but that was the idea. Rob Marshall begged Disney to, like, get 2D animators, not 3D. They actually hand-drawn all of that. So, obviously, they're acting in front of a green screen, which I can't fault them because that's what they did in the first movie, and that's what they're trying to do as well. But the other one that's green screen, I believe, I believe is can you imagine that because I have no idea how else they would have done that. Yes, I believe that's all yes, green screen. It was definitely green screen and they were fine. And now going back to the animation sequence that you were talking about, 
I'm very glad that they brought back 2D. And I think they brought back a couple of Disney animators who are in out of retirement. Yeah. Do this. And it took about, I think, I remember from the bonus features, at least two to three years just to work on that sequence. And I love the detail of the animation style and that it mimics the Xerox style of animation during the 60s, like in films like Sword in the Stone and 101 Dalmatian, that sort of animation style. Because you'll note that the trees during the chase sequence are very much in the style of the trees in Sword in the Stone. And the wolf gets crazy Cruella eyes when Mm -hmm. the wolf is driving, just like in 101 Dalmatians. So I love those little details of the style of the 60s. I also like they went with a different... It was a little different than Mary Poppins. So at least they weren't like too much in your face being like it's the same everyone we're doing the same because <laughs> like if it, it i think if they made it the the similar animation style as it was in the first one i think that would have been a little too much of like uh we're being cheeky <laughs> yeah did you notice that they even animated the actors shadows it's no they, they, yeah watch when uh, Jack and Mary Poppins are against the red curtain, when she's like, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. D-flat major. Mm-hmm. Um, they animate her shadows. It's incredible. I like the wig that they give her for that one, uh, for covers, not the book. Where Oh, her Velma Kelly wig? Yes. Yes, I like that. I mean, the both of them, you could tell they're not dancers, so they're trying their hardest. <laughs> Like they could have done like a big choreographed dance number for that, but like I guess both of them were like, we no, let's let's do like a step touch maybe. But Rob Marshall, I believe, is such a gifted choreographer in which he can make choreography look interesting for beginners, which I greatly appreciate. Yeah, yeah. That's oh no, don't get me good choreographers making beginners look like they know how to dance. Like uh, Triple Little Light, like, Fantastic is amazing when they go when they go into like that i'm just gonna call it a courtyard i don't know what it is an abandoned greenhouse okay when they they go into there and all the guys are on the lamp posts and everything like it is amazing but then the bmx bikes come in and i'm not here for that (laughs) I don't, I'm like, I get it that you're tying it into their mode of transportation and everything, but like, did we need to see bikes doing tricks or can we just see more choreography? Please, thank you. That's just me. The the BMX stuff didn't bother me. What bothered me was the BMX, all that, the BMX stuff they did during the chase sequence. I'm like, this is not the time for tricks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's time to go to the bank. We're not doing Fast and Furious and Mary Poppins time. Yeah. I didn't mind the tricks for Triple Little Like Fantastic because that makes sense. The same way that the Chimney Suites in the first one did all those tricks dancing I on themes. noticed as well this time. I more, more this time than I did before because I was actually like focusing to, for this conversation. In Triple Little Light Fantastic, they filmed it the same way Step in Time was filmed where the dancers were in shadow we didn't see their faces and that blew my mind so i was like oh my god you're you're doing the same thing that they did with the chimney sweeps you know what i'm talking do you know what i'm talking about i know exactly what you're talking about 
there is so much love and attention to detail for this movie that I really appreciate Rob Marshall and his team. I can't imagine being approached and being like, hi, we need a sequel to Mary Poppins. Good luck. Don't step on anyone's childhood. One of our beloved movies that we have, like PL Travers hated the movie. Uh, She put it in her will that the the Sherman brothers were not allowed to work on the musical or any other property that Disney has. Um, And like, I guess because she died and the rights were up on her property, that that's why they for like Disney was like, let's now make the sequel. They were dancing on eggshells, and I mm. think they did a beautiful job. And despite its flaws that the movie has, I'm happy to have this movie in my life. And for me, the ends justifies the means. And just... I'm very grateful that it reinstalled my love for Mary Poppins. A lot of love and respect went into making this film and it just shows. And I have to commend Rob Marshall for it. Oh, yeah. I'm very thankful. For uh, it. One more question before we get into Sharp and Flat. How did you feel about Lin-Manuel Miranda graduating from the Dick Van Dyke School of Accents? His accent didn't offend me, nor does Dick Van Dyke's in the original. I'm fine with it. Stop <laughs> picking on Dick Van Dyke and his accents. Now, you might be asking, dear listeners, um, well, this was before a time when there's we're now in an interesting time, Lynn Manuel Miranda wise, in which people uh Lynn Manuel Miranda's getting to James Corden mm. levels of things, in which there was a time when James Corden was appearing in every movie musical and everything. And then people got really sick of him to the point where they picketed him not being in the Wicked movie. And now we're getting to a stage where Lin-Manuel Miranda is now in everything and we're getting sick of that. Well, he is, well Disney now owns him because he's been writing for them. I'm also surprised he didn't write anything for this. But I kind Thank of God. appreciate that because now he's just an actor in the property. Well, he's not... He- Yes. Right, a director, actor. Yeah. And so this was before, this was at the very beginning of Lin-Manuel Miranda being in everything and anything. Um, you might be asking, dear listener, why is Lin-Manuel Miranda even in this movie? It's not to tie in the Hamilton fans. I mean, sure, that was a reason, but it wasn't the main reason. It's because Dick Van Dyke was the Broadway man of the 1960s with his smash hit Bye Bye Birdie. As Lin Manuel, well, I can't speak. Lin Manuel Miranda is the Broadway man of the 2010s with Hamilton. That's why that connection is the way it is. I don't know who else they would have picked because I feel like he looks like he's the same age as Emily Mortimer, who plays Jane. They retconned enough of his story and the Mary Poppins movie, the first one. Where he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I was like an intern with Bert and I would see Jane all the time. And you're like, I, I don't have any recollection of you in the first movie, first of all. Well, it must have happened in After. between the time of the first one and the second one. The internet kind of destroyed the... um Everything? Yes, you're right. Part of this movie for me. Because I'm sure that because it was Lynn and Lynn was at the height of his popularity, that... I'm sure the writers didn't want the internet to ship Mary Poppins and Jack. So they decided 
to add this subplot of Jane having the relationship with Jack to make sure that the relationship with Mary Poppins and Jack is strictly platonic. Um, and to make sure that there wasn't any confusion that Jack and Mary were going to be a couple. But in order to do that, they had to give Jack a relationship with Jane. And you'll notice that even at the last bit at the of the movie, even though Jane and Jack are lovers now, Jack goes his own separate way on a bike and Jane goes in the house. So I, I found that a little, a little uh, darn it. Because you, it's a subplot in the starting in the second act of the film. Do you think the Admiral and Mr. Binnacle are in a relationship? You just realized that? No, I just want to ask. I, I want because I mean, I guess it's coded like super coded. Uh, in the it's first not. Movie. It's not. It's not. You can. I mean, if you want to be silly, yes, you can read it that way. But they're not there. You know, you know, they're not. I know they're not. But if you want to be silly, yes, they are lovers. Anchors away, my boys. I feel like in this one, it's a little more flexible. <laughs> and I love... Okay, here's a plot point I do like. The plot point of the Admiral being five minutes late to the cannon. And then at the climax sequence when Big Ben actually strikes at midnight. That was pretty funny. And I really appreciated that. I was wondering if that's actually real. Or like based off of another book. Because it feels like... It's so important and it's a running theme, running theme throughout the whole movie. But I couldn't find anything. So, no, I think it was a creation of the film. Well, because like Mary Poppins mentions, like it's whatever should be easier than riding an elephant, which happens in the books. Uh, uh, Dick Van Dyke starts the joke, the man with the wooden leg, but that's from the first movie. Uh, a cover's not the book is full of references to other characters in Mary Poppins comes back. Yeah. A lot of the books that are referenced on the back are PL Travers books. Right. So I wasn't sure if the big Ben action sequence slash big Ben being five minutes early had anything to do with another book. And if you, the listener, knows, we'll get to the socials later. But for right now, Colden, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into Sharp and Flat? There's so much I want to talk about, but I think they would just add another hour. So let's just go to Sharp and Flats. Awesome! Sharp Flat. So in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it or thought it could change, it's flat. I want to start with the flats because we've been giving such a love fest that I want to end on a high note. Heyo. So, okay. <laughs> some of them are fun and some of them are serious. Like one of my serious flats is not enough. Julie Walters. I love her. I wanted, I, I know she's in enough, but like, I don't know, maybe like a fun scene or something. I love What's her. With the bump? I also flatted Lin-Manuel Miranda's and Meryl Streep's accents. It's a Disney movie. It's a Disney movie musical. I know. It's about the accents. I Hey, I had to listen to it. <laughs> I also flat a Turning Turtle. I didn't like it. I understand the message behind it and the meaning behind it. I don't know. There was just moments that I was like, what? Why this? Maybe different lyrics? If there was different lyrics or something? I don't know. 
I also flatted the stunt bicycles during the Triple Little Light Fantastic. And then I flatted the ending Big Ben action sequence. And that's it for my flats. What about you? What are your flats? I think I would agree with you on most of your flats. I think a major flat for me is that action chase sequence. And I wonder if there's a world, and I think it would maybe would have made the movie much more stronger. If I could change the movie, it would be them moving out of the house and realizing that they didn't need the house to have the memories of their mother. It was them being together that created the memories and they can create happiness wherever they go. They don't need the house. So I wonder if there's a universe out there with that movie in mind. But however, and I was thinking about this before, right? I hopped onto this call is in the first one, the big thing for Mr. Banks is him keeping his job. And there's a part of the movie where he loses his job, but then he gets it back. Same as this one. The big climax is whether we're going to keep the house. And there's a moment where we where we do lose the house, but then we get it back. So I understand it's following the beats of the original, but I wonder if it would have been stronger if they did lose the house because, and they have to move somewhere else. Because then it would go into the place where the lost things go a little bit more. Because that's the whole point of the song, where it's like, things are things. The memories... Your memories of the person is what's more important than the thing of whatever the person gave you. Yes, I agreed. But that also, when they get the house back, it makes the final sequence when the door opens and nowhere to go but up a lot stronger and a lot more tear jerky. Uh, do you have any other flats? That's my big one. Okay. So... Every once in a while in this section, I have what I like to call a natural cold. We have so many naturals when we do these things. I only have one this time, and it's the Easter eggs. Why are the Easter eggs naturals? You'd think they would be a sharp. Well, because there are some that are like slapping you in the face with like the structure of the movie being like, it's the same as the first one. But then there are others that are like a little bit more like you, like Ellen. I feel like uh, Julie Walters' character if you don't remember her from the first movie, you're thinking this is a whole new character that's been with them since Michael was an adult. I like it and I don't at the same time. And like, I, I liked how they treated, um, I want to say her name one more time, Karen Dotris. I like how they treated that. But like you said too, as well, with Angela Lansbury, you know that that was supposed to be Julie Andrews. So yeah, it's a Maybe weird that- thing. I'm here for a lot of them. But there were some of them that made it natural worthy than sharp worthy. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's get into sharps. I sharp Sandy Powell's con- costume design because, like, it's a fashion show, the whole movie. I loved it. I also sharped Emily Blunt, sharp the hand drawn animation because I miss it. I want more. I wish we get I wish we went back to that. I wish we had some more 2D animation from Disney because man, the Renaissance, Disney Renaissance. Oh, we need a second age of Renaissance or something, whatever we'll call it. But then the computer ruined everything. And then the computer ruined everything. Um I want to sharp the practicality of Topsy's set piece because 
it is real. And you know what? Fuck it. All the set pieces, because it is real. Like the moments that were CGI were done on purpose because I don't know how else you would do that in reality. (laughs) There is no way we can make 2D animation and live and humans interact (laughs) in real life. You had to do something like that. I also want to sharp the lyric. Perhaps we've learned when day is done, some stuff and nonsense could be fun. Oh, stuff and nonsense. Hmm. Hey, they kept it. Right? They kept no, it. No, no, they did. And yes, they did. Anyway, continue, continue. Um, I want to sharp also, then you've forgotten what it's like to be a child. That's two lines, because I believe there's another line in, in between that's like, forgotten what? But because those two lines that I'm sharpening are the thesis statement of this movie. And I really like how it's done. And it really hit the emotional chords that we talked about where we were crying and waiting. I'm still waiting for my Oscar for ugly crying. And I think snot came out of my nose the first time I saw this movie. <laughs> Same. Um, and then I want to sharp the following performances. Can you imagine that? And triple little light. Fantastic. Like everything worked. The song was great. The choreography is great. The imagery was great. It was all great. How about you? What are your sharps? Sharp one. I love the theme that Rob Marshall gave. Well, a, a, thin, a thematic theme in which the skies at the very beginning of the film are very cloudy and gray. But as Mary Poppins does her magic, the skies become more clear and more beautiful. That is a great sharp. Sharp number two is towards the advertising team because the famous blue poster for Mary Poppins Returns is a nod to the 1964 film poster for My Fair Lady. You'll note that both of the the leading ladies, Audrey Hepburn and Emily Blunt, are the center of it, and they have their head down, and it's covered by a hat. And in the right next to them is their leading man, um, Rex Harrison in the Mary po- in the My Fair Lady poster, and Lin Manuel Miranda in the Mary Poppins Returns poster, and they're all surrounded by different little moments in the film, and they're also in a very like animated uh, sketchbook style. So props to the advertising team for that little nod, and we also know everything that happened between. Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady, which is another universe of conversation. Sharp number three. I love that Rob Marshall added these private moments with Mary Poppins and how she honestly reacts and we sympathize with her that she always has to keep a distance. Some examples are when Michael says, Georgie, please, we're in the midst of a grown-up conversation. And you just see Mary just like break down inside and just feel so sad that Michael has turned into the shell of a child he used to be. There's also this great moment where she honestly reacts to the children's comments saying, let's tell Mary Poppins what we said about the bowl. And the children go, the children say, well, never mind. She wouldn't believe us anyway. And you see Mary break down that she she has to keep this distance. And also, of course, the final moments when she says to the balloon in her own way, practically perfect in every way. And then she looks at the balloon and she just gets so sad because she realizes she's going to miss these kids again. 
She's so, so good, Emily Blunt, in this. I felt she should have been nominated for an Oscar. There's just a weird thing with Mary Poppins, though. And maybe you can help me out with this. In this movie, it felt like she knew what was going to happen. The whole arc. Where she's like, these are the course of events that are going to happen. And I'm just now playing a part. Playing like a narrator part. Being like, oh, oh, I'm going to now. We're now going into the bowl because I knew you were going to crack it and everything. Or like, oh, uh, especially when they're going to see Topsy and then they're taking a different route to the bank and she's like, oh, I'm going to play matchmaker now. But like there are moments where it feels like she's genuinely caught off guard and she didn't expect things. Such as? After the bank, when Michael is is chastising his kids and he's like, you, Mary Poppins, come join us. There's a moment where she's like, I'm not expecting this. This wasn't in, this wasn't part of the plan or this wasn't foretold because Mary Poppins is a magical creature, whether or not you want to admit that she is, there is magic with her. And so whether she saw it in her crystal ball or it's like she's omnipotent because she knows things, whatever theory you want to follow but it feels like in this movie as opposed to the first one it's like she already foresaw the course of events but then like every once in a while something catches her off and she's like oh i didn't plan on this well i can explain that moment um but first of all i would like to make one thing quite clear yes i never explain anything (laughs) don't overthink it no, but if but I kind of no, 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 she's Mary Poppins, she's perfect. Sometimes she has her moments, but she never explains anything. Moving on, uh, but I liked that it was a it was a different character, and obviously Emily Blunt played her differently. It's not like she, I mean, she probably did feel the daunting task like everyone else in this movie of like we are making a sequel to a beloved movie by a lot of people. And so we're making strides to make this original in a way, but also hearkening the first one. And so she didn't play it the way that Julie Andrews played the character. She made it different. Yes. And it's even said that she played it more like the books than the way Julie Andrews was directed in the first movie. Yes. She, her reference guide was the books and she did not watch the film deliberately. And I think that's what makes it her own. Yes. Is her interpretation of the books. All in all, I don't know what I'm saying, but it just felt, it just felt like it's a, di- it's a different enough Mary Poppins because now we're seeing it through the eyes of these three new children, as well as in the movie, Jane and Michael are like questioning reality. Like th- they ask a couple of times, did this happen to us? Where, or are we imagining things? And grown-ups forget. They always do. always do. do. Uh, Do you have any other sharps? Sharp number four. Okay. I appreciate that the script writers and all the the team behind the script writers um, kept Mary Poppins very, dare I say, bitchy. I greatly appreciate that. Because I think Mary Poppins for me was possibly my gay awakening. Because Mary Poppins is basically a drag queen. She's self-absorbed, always fabulous, and has a bitchy remark to every question or remark made to her. She has 
great bitchy one-liners and I love that's why I love Mary Poppins is her bitchy one-liners I it drives me absolutely insane like my favorite one is when Michael's like I didn't realize that all this time the children were looking after me when I was supposed to be looking after them and she just goes up the stairs and goes a bank's family trade I'm just like and I love it and much like a drag queen she's magic because drag is magic magic. Mary Poppins is a drag queen think about it (laughs) I mean RuPaul's drag race is not my religion but Mary Poppins is my religion (laughs) that's my type of drag queen I want Uh, any other sharps any other flats any naturals my last sharp goes to Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman they are often given projects they know that they will be picked on charlie and the chocolate factory mary poppins some like it hot they're always given these impossible tasks and i commend them that they do a fantastic job they do i don't care what anyone else says or thinks they do an incredible job um i can't imagine how hard it is to write original songs to match the brilliance of the original and the original plot points and to follow the same storyline and try to succeed that well. Can't imagine that pressure. And I love Mark Shaman's score for this. As we said before, there's some nice nods to the original score of Mary Poppins. For example, when Mary Poppins enters the Banks family house, uh, the overtures version of a spoonful of sugar plays and when Mary goes up the banister, the same music that plays when Mary Poppins goes up the banister in the first one is the same. Uh, Fidelity Fiduciary Bank plays throughout the bank sequences. There's a little nice nod to that. Also, the overture pays homage to Erwin Costell, who was the original orchestrator of Mary Poppins oh. and the version of The Sound of Music. If you listen to the overture, the um the strings do this scale up and then it goes off to a tune that little the violins going up is the same way the overture for the film version of the sound of music starts so uh give it a listen you'll listen to the beginning strings of the sound of music and the beginning strings of the mary poppins returns overture that's that's a nice little nod there. Also, and we'll be remiss if we don't mention it, that before Nowhere to Go But Up, when they're walking in the park, you can hear Let's Go Fly a Kite. Yeah. And then you hear Let's Go Fly a That's the moment that really makes me cry. Is right after they sing the last Nowhere to Go But Up. And then you hear Let's Go Fly a Kite. I just started bawling. Even thinking about it, it's making me... Really misty and teary-eyed right now. Well, who knew this was going to be the emotional episode? <laughs> and I took, uh, during the pandemic, I took a master class with Mark Shaman, and I got to thank him for his incredible music. And Aww. this movie makes me cry. And he said, you know, we were thinking about subtitling it. Mary Poppins Returns. Why are all the adults crying? Ah! So this is a good segue into my next question and last question of the episode colton what songs would you add to your life's playlist i'm so glad you asked that for this one 
There are no songs I'm going to add to my life's playlist. However, this movie has added a lot of phrases that I use in my daily life. Par example, um, fuss, fuss, fuss. I should lift you on the British stand. Whenever something goes wrong in my life, I always just go fuss, fuss, fuss. And then whenever I teach a lot of kids and a lot of the times I'm, I always say stuff like head up and feet beneath you and set up straight. You're not a flower bag. And really how incredibly rude. I use a lot of, of Emily Blunt's Mary Poppinisms <laughs> in my daily life. And oh, my other favorite is um, whenever something goes wrong or something doesn't do right. I just go, not in the slightest, ready. Again, Mary Poppins has these great bitchy one-liners and I'm all here for them. And a lot of them have gone into my daily vocabulary. Well, for me, I would add some songs. I'll add, can you imagine that? Nowhere to go but up. Maybe every once in a while I'll listen to a cover is not the book just because it's fun. Um, I'm looking at my notes real quick and for Dick Van Dyke's reprise of Triple Little Light Fantastic, I wrote, Dick Van Dyke is still dancing. Hashtag goals. <laughs> yes, he is still dancing. At God 90, bless. I think he was either 89 or 90 when he filmed this. So I'm so glad we have him. It's going to be a, uh, a very sad day when he passes. And on that sad note. <laughs> uh, hold on, I'll do a positive note. I was fortunate enough to meet Dick Van Dyke. Um, he was a guest appearance at a Cheetah Rivera concert that Cheetah you. was playing in Los Angeles. And Dick <laughs> all of this I <laughs> got to do Rosie. And I was front row for that. I mean, my life was 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 dead when Cheetah Rivera was doing all that jazz. She looked at me and gave me a wink. I was dead. <sighs> but then she brought on as a guest surprise Dick Van Dyke and they sang Rosie from Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, and on that happy note and on now that happy note that i'm super jealous of you uh colton we're done with the episode can you imagine that yes i can because it is uh colton what do you have to plug or promote in honor of this episode i have as i previously mentioned i have recorded a never heard never before heard excuse me deleted song from mary poppins returns called Stuff and Nonsense, which was the first, it wasn't a first draft, but it was the first version of the song that became Can You Imagine That? If you're interested in listening to it, just YouTube, Colden Lamb, my name, on YouTube, and you can listen to it there. It's never been heard anywhere else, and you'll be the first people to know about it, besides my YouTube subscribers, which there's only like two. Me and Don't worry, mom. I'll put it in the show notes, and we'll plug it everywhere else. Yeah, but it's it'll be a, for people who do like the movie and do like the song. Can you imagine that? You'll hear little bits of "Can you Stuff imagine that" starting to bubble up. Also, you'll an interesting thing if you're a Mark Shaman Scott Whitman fan, the song shares a lot in common with a song they wrote for Smash called "At Your Feet." They share a very similar style and they almost sound exactly the same. So be sure to keep your ears open and be sure to uh, go watch that video on YouTube. Uh, 
And if you want to answer some questions that we asked during the episode, because I can't remember any of them that I asked, you can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com, also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, and TikTok at buttersongpod. Did you read the books? Do you know the references? Did you did you like this movie? Did you like Emily Blunt's interpretation of it? I'm asking. I'm rapid firing questions here for you to answer. So please somebody answer. Uh, And if you want to be part of next episode's conversation, we're going to be doing the legend of the Stardust brothers. The what? Yes, exactly. And I thought I picked obscure movies. Oh, this is me picking the movie and the, the guests plural hint everyone. Uh-huh. Uh Colton, thank you so much for coming back on. And this is like the tamest movie you picked. I was going through yes. all your other episodes. I was like, this is the one that like has a structure. We don't know need to know about like German epic theater or any other crazy bullshit thing. And yes, it's my first commercial yeah. podcast. Yes. Yeah. But now the door has opened and I must <laughs> off. Goodbye. Bye for now, everyone. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast. And thank you to CastBox for hosting this podcast. Bye again, everyone, and have a musical day. <laughs>